Chapter Twenty Three of the Tavern Knight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Cornwall. The Tavern Knight by Raphael Sabatini. Chapter Twenty Three. Gregory's Attrition. Joseph's journey to London was occasioned by his very natural anxiety to assure himself that Crispin was caught in the toils of the net he had so cunningly baited for him, and that at Castle Marleigh he would trouble them no more. To this end he quitted Sheringham on the day after Crispin's departure. Not a little perplexed was Cynthia at the topsy-turvydom in which that morning she had found her father's house. Kenneth was gone. He had left in the dead of night, and seemingly in haste and suddenness, since on the previous evening there had been no talk of his departing. Her father was abed with a wound that made him feverish. Their grooms were all sick, and wandering in a dazed and witless fashion about the castle, their faces deadly pale and their eyes lusterless. In the hall she had found a chaotic disorder upon descending, and one of the panels of the wainscot she saw was freshly cracked. Slowly the idea forced itself upon her mind that there had been brawling the night before, yet was she far from surmising the motives that could have led to it. The conclusion she came to in the end was that the men had drunk deep, that in their cups they had waxed quarrelsome, and that swords had been drawn. Of Joseph, then, she sought enlightenment, and Joseph lied right handsomely, like the ready-witted knave he was. A wondrously plausible story had he for her ear, a story that played cunningly upon her knowledge of the compact that existed between Kenneth and Sir Crispin. "'You may not know,' said he, full aware that she did know, that when Galliard saved Kenneth's life at Worcester, he exacted from the lad the promise that in return Kenneth should aid him in some vengeful business he had on hand. Cynthia nodded that she understood, or that she knew, and glibly Joseph pursued. Last night, when on the point of departing, Crispin, who had drunk over freely, as is his custom, reminded Kenneth of his plighted word, and demanded of the boy that he should upon the instant go forth with him. Kenneth replied that the hour was over late to be setting out upon a journey, and he requested Galliard to wait until today, when he would be ready to fulfill what he had promised. But Crispin retorted that Kenneth was bound by his oath to go with him when he should require it, and again he bade the boy make ready at once. Words ensued between them, the boy insisting upon waiting until today, and Crispin insisting upon his getting his boots and cloak, coming with him there and then. More heated grew the argument, till in the end Galliard, being put out of temper, snatched at his sword, and would assuredly have spitted the boy, had not your father interposed, thereby getting himself wounded. Thereafter, in his drunken lust, Sir Crispin went the length of wantonly cracking that panel with his sword, by way of showing Kenneth what he had to expect, unless he obeyed him. At that I intervened, and using my influence I prevailed upon Kenneth to go with Galliard as he demanded. To this, for all his reluctance, Kenneth ended by consenting, and so they are gone. By that most glib and specious explanation, Cynthia was convinced. True, she added a question touching the amazing condition of the grooms, in reply to which Joseph afforded her a part of the truth. Sir Crispin sent them some wine, and they drank to his departure so heartily that they are not rightly sober yet. Satisfied with this explanation, Cynthia repaired to her father. Now Gregory had not agreed with Joseph what narrative they were to offer Cynthia, for it had never crossed his dull mind that the disorder of the hall and the absence of Kenneth might cause her astonishment. 
and so when she touched upon the matter of his wound, like the blundering fool he was, he must needs let his tongue wag upon a tale which, if no less imaginative than Joseph's, was vastly as inferior in plausibility, and had yet the quality of differing from it totally in substance. "'Plague on that dog, your lover, Cynthia,' he growled from the mountain of pillows that propped him. "'If he should come to wed my daughter after pinning me to the wainscot of my own hall, may I be for ever damned.' "'How?' quoth she. "'Did you say that Kenneth did it?' "'Aye, did he. He ran at me ere I could draw, like the coward he is, sink him, and had me through the shoulder in the twinkling of an eye.' Here was something beyond her understanding. What were they concealing from her? She set her wits to the discovery, and plied her father with another question. How came you to quarrel? How? Twas, twas concerning you, child, replied Gregory at random, and unable to think of a likelier motive. How concerning me? Leave me, Cynthia, he groaned in despair. Go, child, I am grievously wounded. I have the fever, girl. Go, let me sleep. Tell me, father, what passed? "'Unnatural child, will you plague a sick man with questions? "'Would you keep him from the sleep that may mean recovery to him?' "'Father, dear,' she murmured softly, "'if I thought it was as you say, I would leave you. "'But you know that you are attempting to conceal something from me, "'something that I should know, that I must know. "'Bethink you that it is of my lover that you have spoken.' "'By a stupendous effort Gregory shaped a story that to him seemed likely.' "'Well, then, since no, you must,' he answered, "'this is what befell. "'We had all drunk over deep to our shame, do I confess it, "'and growing tender-hearted for you "'and bethinking me of your professed distaste to Kenneth's suit, "'I told him that for all the results "'that were likely to attend his sojourn at Castle Marley, "'he might as well bear Crispin company in his departure. "'He flared up at that and demanded of me "'that I should read him my riddle. "'Faith, I did by telling him that we were like to have snow "'on Midsummer's Day,' ere he became yours husband. That speech of mine so angered him, being as he was all addled with wine and ripe for any madness, that he sprang up and drew on me there and then. The others sought to get between us, but he was over quick, and before I could do more than rise from the table, his sword was through my shoulder and into the wainscot at my back. After that it was clear he could not remain here, and I demanded that he should leave upon the instant. Himself he was nothing loath, for he realized his folly, and he misliked the gleam of Joseph's eye, which could be wondrous wicked upon occasion. Indeed, but for my intercession, Joseph had laid him stark. That both her uncle and her father had lied to her, the one cunningly, the other stupidly, she had never a doubt, and vaguely uneasy with Cynthia to learn the truth. Later that day the castle was busy with the bustle of Joseph's departure, and this again was a matter that puzzled her. "'Whither do you journey, uncle?' she asked of him, as he was in the act of stepping out to enter the waiting carriage. "'To London, sweet cousin,' was his brisk reply. "'I am, it seems, becoming a very vagrant in my old age. Have you commands for me? What is it that you look to do in London? There, child, let that be for the present. I will tell you perhaps when I return. The door, Stephen.' She watched his departure with uneasy eyes and uneasy heart. A fear pervaded her that in all that had befallen, in all that was befalling still, whatever it might be, some evil was at work, and an evil that had Crispin for its scope. She had neither reason nor evidence from which to draw this inference. It was no more than the instinct whose voice cries out to us at times the presage of ill, and oftentimes compels our attention in a degree far higher than any evidence could command. 
The fear that was in her urged her to seek what information she could on every hand, but without success. From none could she call the merest scrap of evidence to assist her. But on the morrow she had information as prodigal as it was unlooked for, and from the unlikeliest of sources, her father himself. Chafing at his inaction and lured into indiscretions by the subsiding of the pain of his wound, Gregory quitted his bed and came below that night to sup with his daughter. As his wont had been for years, he drank freely. That done, alive to the voice of his conscience, and seeking to drown its loud-tongued cry, he drank more freely still, so that in the end his henchman Stephen was forced to carry him to bed. This Stephen had grown gray in the service of the Ashburns, and amongst much valuable knowledge that he had amassed, was a skill in dealing with wounds and a wide understanding of the ways to go about healing them. This knowledge made him realize how unwise at such a season was Gregory's debauch, and sorrowfully did he wag his head over his master's condition of stupor. Stephen had grave fears concerning him, and these fears were realized when, upon the morrow, Gregory awoke on fire with the fever. They summoned a leech from Sheringham, and this cunning knave, with a view to adding importance to the cure he was come to effect, and which in reality presented no alarming difficulty, shook his head with ominous gravity, and whilst promising to do all that his skill permitted, he spoke of a clergyman to help Gregory make his peace with God, for the leech had no cause to suspect that the whole of the sacred college might have found the task beyond its powers. A wild fear took Gregory in its grip. How could he die with such a load as that which he now carried upon his soul? And the leech, seeing how the matter preyed upon his patient's mind, made shift, but too late, to tranquilize him with assurances that he was not really like to die, and that he had but mentioned a parson so that Gregory in any case should be prepared. The storm once raised, however, was not so easily to be allayed, and the conviction remained with Gregory that his sands were well-nigh run, and that the end could be but a matter of days in coming. Realizing as he did how richly he had earned damnation, a frantic terror was upon him, and all that day he tossed and turned, now blaspheming, now praying, now weeping. His life had been indeed one protracted course of wrongdoing, and many had suffered by Gregory's evil ways, many a man and many a woman. But as the stars pale and fade when the sun mounts the sky, so too were the lesser wrongs that marked his earthly pilgrimage of sin rendered pale or blotted into insignificance by the greater wrong he had done Ronald Marlay, a wrong which is not ended yet, but whose completion Joseph was even then working to effect. If only he could save Crispin even now in the eleventh hour, if by some means he could warn him not to repair to the sign of the anchor in Thames Street. His disordered mind took no account of the fact that in time that was sped because Galliard's departure, the night should already have reached London. And so it came about that, consumed at once by the desire to make confession to whomsoever it might be, and the wish to attempt yet to avert the crowning evil of whose planning he was partly guilty inasmuch as he had tactly consented to Joseph's schemes, Gregory called for his daughter. She came readily enough, hoping for exactly that which was about to take place, yet fearing sorely that her hopes would suffer frustration, and that she would learn nothing from her father. Cynthia, he cried in mingled dread and sorrow, Cynthia, my child, I'm about to die. She knew both from Stephen and from the leech that this was far from being his condition. Nevertheless, her filial piety was at that moment a touching sight. She smoothed his pillows with a gentle grace that was in itself a soothing caress, even as her soft, sympathetic voice was a caress. 
She took his hand and spoke to him endearingly, seeking to relieve the somber mood whose prey he was become, assuring him that the leech had told her his danger was none so eminent, and that with quiet and a little care he would be up and about again ere many days were sped. But Gregory rejected hopelessly all efforts at consolation. "'I am on my deathbed, Cynthia,' he insisted, "'and when I am gone I know not whom there may be to cheer and comfort your lot in life. Your lover is away on an errand of Joseph's, and it may well be tied that he will never again cross the threshold of Castle Marley. Unnatural though I may seem, sweetheart, my dying wish is that this may be so. She looked up in some surprise. Father, if that be all that grieves you, I can reassure you, I do not love Kenneth. You apprehend me amiss, said he tartly. Do you recall the story of Sir Crispin Galliard's life that you had from Kenneth on the night of Joseph's return? His voice shook as he put the question. "'Why, yes, I am not like to forget it, and nightly do I pray,' she went on, her tongue outrunning discretion and betraying her feelings for Galliard, "'that God may punish those murderers who wrecked his existence.' "'Hush, girl,' he whispered in a quavering voice, "'you know not what you say.' "'Indeed I do, and as there is a just God, my prayer shall be answered.' "'Cynthia,' he wailed, his eyes were wild, and the hand that rested in hers trembled violently. Do you know that it is against your father and your father's brother that you invoke God's vengeance? She had been kneeling at his bedside, but now when he pronounced those words, she rose slowly and stood silent for a spell, her eyes seeking his with an awful look that he dared not meet. At last— Oh, you rave, she protested. It is the fever. Nay, child, my mind is clear, and what I have said is true. True, she echoed, no louder than a whisper and her eyes grew round with horror. True that you and my uncle are the butchers who slew their cousin, this man's wife, and sought to murder him as well, leaving him for dead? True that you are the thieves who, claiming kinship by virtue of that very marriage, have usurped his estates, and that his castle during all these years, whilst he himself went an outcast, homeless, and destitute? Is that what you ask me to believe? Even so, he assented with a feeble sob. Her face was pale, white to the very lips, and her blue eyes smoldered behind the shelter of her drooping lids. She put her hand to her breast, then to her brow, pushing back the brown hair by a mechanical gesture that was pathetic in the tale of pain it told. For support she was leaning now against the wall by the head of his couch. In silence she stood so while you might count to twenty. Then with a sudden vehemence, revealing the passion of anger and grief that swayed her, why she cried why in god's name do you tell me this why his utterance was thick and his eyes that were growing dull as a snake's stared straight before him daring not to meet his daughter's glance i tell it to you he said because i am a dying man and he hoped that the consideration of that momentous fact might melt her and might by pity win her back to him that she was lost to him he realized I tell you because I am a dying man, he repeated. I tell you because in such an hour I fain would make confession and repent, that God may have mercy upon my soul. I tell it you, too, because the tragedy began eighteen years ago is not yet played out, and it may yet be mine to avert the end we had prepared, Joseph and I. Thus perhaps a merciful God will place it in my power to make some reparation. Listen, child, it was against us, as you will have guessed, that Galliard enlisted Kenneth's services, 
and here on the night of Joseph's return he called upon the boy to fulfill him what he had sworn. The lad had no choice but to obey. Indeed, I forced him to it by attacking him and compelling him to draw, which is how I came by this wound. Crispin had of a certainty killed Joseph, but that your uncle bethought him of telling him that his son lived. He saved his life by a lie? That was worthy of him, said Cynthia scornfully. Nay, child, he spoke the truth, and when Joseph offered to restore the boy to him, he had every intention of so doing. But in the moment of writing this superscription to the letter Crispin was to bear to those that had reared the child, Joseph bethought him of a foul scheme for Galliard's final destruction. And so he had sent him to London instead, to a house in Thames Street, where dwells one Colonel Pride, who bears Sir Crispin a heavy grudge, and into whose hands he will be thus delivered. Cannot be done, Cynthia, to arrest this, to save Sir Crispin from Joseph's snare? As well might you seek to restore the breath to a dead man, she answered, and her voice was so oddly calm, so cold and bare of expression, that Gregory shuddered to hear it. Do not delude yourself, she added. Sir Crispin will have reached London long ere this, and by now Joseph will be well on his way to see that there is no mistake made, and that the life you ruined hopelessly years ago is plucked at last from this unfortunate man. Merciful God, am I truly your daughter, she cried? Is my name indeed Ashburn, and have I been reared upon the estates that by crime you gain possession of? Estates that by crime you hold, for they are his. Every stone, every stick that goes to make the place belongs to him, and now he has gone to his death by your contriving. A moan escaped her, and she covered her face with her hands. A moment she stood rocking there, a fair, lissom plant, swept by a gale of ineffable emotion. Then the breath seemed to go all out of her in one great sigh, and Gregory, who dared not look her way, heard the swish of her gown, followed by a thud as she collapsed and lay swooning on the ground. So disturbed at that was Gregory's spirit that, forgetting his wound, his fever, and the death which he had believed impending, he leaped from his couch, and throwing wide the door, bellowing lustily for Stephen. In frightened haste came his henchman to answer the petulant summons, and in obedience to Gregory's commands, he went off again as quickly in quest of Catherine, Cynthia's woman. Between them they bore the unconscious girl to her chamber, leaving Gregory to curse himself for having been lured into a confession that it now seemed to him had been unnecessary, since in his newly found vitality he realized that death was none so near a thing as that scoundrelly fool of a leech had led him to believe. End of chapter 23 Recording by Rick Cornwall